You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. Medical nutrition therapy is one of the cornerstones for managing diabetes. Finding the correct balance of carbohydrates, protein, and fat, along with portion control and moderation, is a very difficult task for all of us, and especially people living with diabetes. Joining us to discuss dietary therapies for people living with diabetes is dietitian and certified diabetes educator in New York City, Lorena Drago. Lorena, welcome to Reach MD. Thank you, Steve. Well, I know uh, you and I are just coming off a large American Association of Diabetes Educator meeting in Atlanta. Tell us what some of the diets they're talking about there. Well, um, I think I'm going to start a little bit with a presentation by Marion France. She's also another colleague, dietitian, and certified diabetes educator. And what she really emphasized was all the different dietary dilemmas that are experienced by many individuals with and without diabetes. And she also showed different comparisons of various diet approaches and their outcomes. And one of the things that is very interesting is that a number of different diet patterns may be effective for maintaining both good glycemic control and also reducing the risk of comorbidities. First, let's start off with what are the standard recommendations now for the quote-unquote diabetic diet? Well, if we follow the standard, Steve, the American Diabetes Association diet, the 2009 recommendations are that different diets can produce weight loss, and it is more of an individualized approach. We're talking about restriction in calories, as well as carbohydrate, and we're also talking about limitation of saturated fat. Well, real briefly, what are the recommendations for protein? Because I'm going out for a big steak tonight. (laughs) Well, protein is usually 15 to 20% of the total calories. So once the calories are calculated, um, then 15 to 20% of those calories should come from protein whether it's animal, plant, or a combination of both. Let's talk about carbohydrates, because that's sort of the big Atkins craze, you know, low carbohydrates, high carbohydrates, simple carbohydrates, complex carbohydrates. What should a diabetic be looking out for? The recommendation is no less than 130 grams of carbohydrate per diet. And now we have all these different studies that that look at a low-carb, high-protein diet. The problem that I find, Steve, is that we really need to define, when we're looking at these results, at these outcomes, what do the authors mean by a low-carbohydrate diet? When I have looked at different studies, I see one study that has 20% of the calories coming from carbohydrate and another one 40%, and they're both touted low-carbohydrate diet. So that I feel that it's a little confusing because we don't have a standard of what we mean when we talk about low-carb diets. 
But in general, those diets that are less than 40% of their calories coming from carbohydrate, what the evidence shows is that they do appear to decrease an appetite. Therefore, you're not going to overconsume calories. Uh, there's also a greater fall in the triglyceride levels and blood pressure in the context of greater weight loss. And there is also a greater initial weight loss, at least during the first six months of the diet. However, it is not sustained. So at one year, we see that even individuals that are on a low-carb diet eventually regain some of that weight, and or at the end, it is very comparable to other kind of approaches. So I believe that there might be a difficulty in adhering to a low-carbohydrate diet, but there's also a difficulty in adhering to a lot of different diet approaches that restrict many of the things that we enjoy. Yeah, and I think low-carbohydrates obviously have been shown to reduce insulin resistance, and it helps people who are on insulin avoid uh, high postprandial blood sugar levels. But uh, obviously what you said earlier is so important. You have to individualize how low is low for each individual person. Well, let's go to fat. Um, What's the latest in the low-fat diets? When we compare some of the diets based on the studies, we see that even low-fat diets that also are restricting the calories, subjects in each diet group can lose very similar amounts of weight. And when it comes to satiety, hunger, or even satisfaction with the diet, it is very comparable to a diet that is low-carbohydrate. However, uh, and this I'm going to, to focus on diets that are mostly plant-based diets. There was an interesting study in which a low-fat um, plant-based diet was compared, which it was mostly a higher carbohydrate content, was compared to a typical uh, ADA diet, 2003 uh, guidelines, and the results were that they were very similar in terms of weight loss. And in addition to that, the diet that was mostly plant-based and low-fat, it appeared to also improve the glycemia and lipids more than the traditional conventional ADA diet. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Steve Edelman, and I'm speaking with Lorena Drago. We are talking about dietary therapies for people with diabetes. Well, how do we apply these different type of tips and things we're learning about new diets to people with diabetes? Uh, Steve, I have one comment, and that is the diet that you can stick to is probably the diet that will work for you. And individualize, individualize, individualize until the person finds the right approach. That's number one. Number two, calories do count, even much more so than macronutrients. So whether an individual is going to have an optimal outcome, both in his or her glycemic control as well as lipid control or comorbidities, we are talking about calories count and also we, the evidence shows that multiple encounters with a, regi a registered dietitian is actually more effective than just one encounter uh, because it's, it's about having a coaching system. 
So the evidence does show that multiple encounters are successful and that many times weight loss does not always lead to improvement in blood glucose levels. So I think the quality of the diet counts, the calories count, and also reinforcement of the material learned is essential for an individual to stay on track. Yeah, and I, I totally agree, and that's one reason why we started uh, taking control of your diabetes. We just got to keep educating and motivating over time. You can't just get one little lecture on dietary therapy when you're first diagnosed, and that's it. Well, tell us some of the new research on vitamin D. I know that, that that's an issue with diabetes, people with diabetes and without. Almost 23 million people, according to the article, uh, Americans with diabetes have low vitamin D levels. And the evidence suggests that vitamin D plays a, a very important role in insulin sensitivity and secretion. And furthermore, that it is very difficult to manage vitamin D in our diet because it's not found abundantly in most of the foods that we eat. In addition to that, we also need sun exposure. So for us here in New York, after November, we have limited amounts of exposure to the sun. In addition to that, we are using a lot of sunblock, which also impairs the absorption of vitamin D. And it has been associated with hyperglycemia, with insulin resistance, hypertension, and even and even heart disease. Um, there was also another study that evaluated 3,000 people with type 1 diabetes, and, the, and it found out that there was a decreased risk uh, in disease for people who took the vitamin D supplements. Well, let's end the show with a very interesting topic. Uh, it's the use of technology, uh, such as recording dietary intakes in terms of helping people maintain a good dietary you know, daily schedule. There are various online food diaries in which individuals can track their intake, and at the end, they can have the spreadsheets with their calories, the percentage of the calories that come from carbohydrates, fats, and proteins right at their fingertips. So not only accessing the, the amount of carbohydrates that they're eating, but also even their vitamins and minerals just to see where am I? Am I meeting the daily recommended requirements of the different vitamins? And some of them are uh, available for a fee and some of them are free. Individuals can also input their physical activity, their caloric expenditure, and tracking their progress. And this is for people with and without diabetes. So I think that this is also an excellent way, and many of these programs can be accessed by the diabetes educator as well as the physician, and accessed through PDAs, iPhones. So I think that technology is going to play a great role regardless of where we are. We can have a team of healthcare professionals helping the person with diabetes to maintain their goals, and also the patients themselves. They can access all this information really at the tip of their hands. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, dietitian in New York City, Lorena Drago. Lorena, 
thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. What are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Uh, Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess, in a way, it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.